The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures or Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Welcome to Figures of Speech. Our guest today is Valerie Rivero, an early adopter of communication technology and high-performing business operations professional. Throughout her career, Valerie has spent over 15 years as associate director in her career at WebMD, where she championed 100-plus programs from concept all the way through launch. Today, she's the principal consultant for her own company, Westwild which offers digital assistance to nonprofits as she plans her next corporate career move. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have a conversation with you and learn a little more about you, obviously, and talk about what it is that you do and how communications plays a role into that. One of the things I love is your motto. You go by this philosophy of talking to people, pushing tasks and conversations along and getting things done. At the end of the day, that's what we're all out here to do. And how effectively we are at that, that can be determined by how well we communicate. So thanks for joining us on Figures of Speech. Tell us a little bit about your current role. You're right now the principal consultant of Westwell. You're offering digital assistance to nonprofits. Share a little more about that with us. Well, I am looking for my next role in the corporate world. And in the meantime, I have decided to use my many years of experience in the digital realm to help small nonprofits that are really in the business of doing something to help others. And having a website, having an Instagram feed is not what they're good at, not where their skills lie, but is really important for them to get their message out, to help push their message along. And I felt that in this between time, it would really be the best way for me to spend my time to try to, not inadvertently, but to help others. That's really what I try to do in every role that I come to. And I felt that this was probably the best way to to spend my time in a way that felt worthwhile. Valerie, you mentioned to us that, and that's fantastic. I love that you have that focus. And as we know, you spend a great deal of time in the corporate world. And I love what you just said about taking your experience and expertise from the corporate world and infusing that into the nonprofit space, because you're right, it's something that's sorely needed. What is it you would say you've taken away from the corporate experience that you have that's been most influential in helping out in this new area with nonprofits and helping them reach their goals? Well, I spent 15 years at WebMD in account management and digital marketing production. So I've done many, many websites for many, many clients and have learned a lot about the message, have learned a lot about what makes effective messaging and what makes ineffective messaging. But the mechanics of the website production itself are really the easy part for me. I think of myself as something of a digital pioneer. I was using email and the internet with air quotes uh, in the early 90s when I was working in a university setting and had a friend that worked at another university. And the university had issued email addresses to everyone. So I was an early adopter of email, both from having a friend who called me and said, hey, you know what, we can talk during the day over this system. (laughs) And then I actually got my entire department using email. A bunch of the old professors were not particularly happy about it, but I felt that the best way to announce an event was not necessarily making 100 Xerox copies and putting them in everyone's little mail cubbyhole when the university had issued everyone an email address. So I sort of made an edict that 
all of these things are now going to go by email. And of course, the older professors had their secretaries print them out and read them to them. But yeah, really, I felt like it was a way to better utilize resources and to better utilize the communication structure that had been made available to us through the university. So I was something of an early adopter of email. I Later in the 90s, I taught myself HTML, which now sounds quaint. Apparently, uh, fourth graders learn how to, how to code in HTML. <laughs> we are dating ourselves on many levels here right now. <laughs> I, sure felt, I sure felt accomplished when I built my first website. <laughs> and I did it all in Notepad and not using one of those tools, by the way, something I'm proud of. Wow. That's actually how I ended up at WebMD. I started in a technical role in website production. So since I knew the mechanics of website production, one of my mentors thought that I had more skills that could be better utilized in working with our clients and helping them get their marketing message out via the mechanics of a website and then later via uh, social media and apps and various online tools. But the mechanics of it is really the part that comes most easily to me since I'm familiar with it. And those tools are familiar and I'm not afraid to use them. And afraid to use them, I say that because some of the folks that I meet in the nonprofit space, they find it very intimidating. They find the idea of creating a website or setting up a Facebook page or a Facebook group, it's intimidating to them and they end up, as we all do, sort of procrastinating and putting it off because they're afraid of it. And I feel like being able to use my skills, my experience to help take that burden off them allows me to do what comes easier to me and allows them to better focus on their mission of directly helping whoever their their care population is. That's awesome. And admittedly, I have like 50 questions for you, but I'm going to try to curb my my curiosity. And, and by the way, I love the fact that- I'm happy to answer whatever you I, have. I'm sure you would, but I don't think that everybody wants to hear every single one of my questions. But I will <laughs> tell you a couple of things. One, I love that you use the word curious in your LinkedIn profile, because that is one of my, it's one of my criteria when I look at people is I want to see an inherent curiosity. And as I'm listening to you talk, I, uh, the question that keeps popping into my head is why? Why were you an early adopter? Why did this happen? And, and of course, I immediately go to the curiosity, right? You're probably very naturally a person who is looking for different ways to do things or trying to expand your own knowledge or your own reach. But I am, I am curious about why, why? Why in the 90s when the rest of us were using typewriters, uh, were you, or maybe, maybe word processors. Inner office memo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the driving force behind you jumping on this and, and capitalizing on the technology? Well, two things. In answer to your question about curiosity, my very first job was as an intern reporter for the city newspaper when I was a senior in high school. She's my people. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in the lifestyle section and I actually had my own column, but I did personal interest interviews. And I look back now and think, wow, they sent me out to knock on the door of someone I was supposed to interview. And I'd say, hi, I'm Valerie from the paper. I'm here to interview you. And I wasn't intimidated by that. I found it uh, really thrilling and really engaging. And people like to be interviewed. People like to feel like someone is interested in what they have to say. I found that I interviewed young people. I interviewed a 100-year-old man. And actually, a kid that I had interviewed when he was, uh, he was in junior high and I was in high school, he reached out to me in Facebook, on Facebook a while back saying, you have no idea what it did for me having this 
person from the newspaper come to interview me when I was just in seventh grade. That made me feel important. That made me feel heard. That made me feel like someone thought that who I was was interesting enough to actually be in the paper. And you have no idea what an impact that had on me. And when I found you on Facebook, I just wanted to reach out and let you know. I think I, I, think I inherently understood that people want to communicate and want to be heard. And email was at first an easier resource. I think email has turned into something very transactional. I think people thought that it would perhaps replace letter writing, but I've never seen an email that compares to perhaps the sort of beautifully eloquent letters that you hear watching something like a Ken Burns production (laughs) with beautiful flowery language. Uh, I've never seen one of those. If you have, you're quite lucky. But first I saw email as a practical resource. Uh, It was a way to get more communication done more quickly. And I think that that is what we have turned it into. I think a lot of us use email as our to-do list. I think a lot of us leave emails in our inbox that are still to be actioned or I can't do anything until I hear back from this person. And I found email at first a way to get things done and like I did say in my LinkedIn profile push processes forward but when I first went to WebMD when I went for my interview I was very surprised at how quiet the office was I was coming from a medical equipment company where I helped arrange uh, training for doctors and hospitals When you buy a million-dollar piece of equipment for the operating room, they don't let you just plug it in and use it. You actually have to learn how to to use it from other doctors. And I arranged training on that for my company. Uh, So I was on the phone all day and had gotten really good at having phone conversations and taking good notes from my phone conversations, which, which would then help me have more effective email and phone follow-ups. So when I first got to WebMD, I was surprised at how quiet the office was. What I didn't realize was that there were about 100,000 AOL instant messenger conversations going on at the same time. So that was, I had always worked in technology-related companies, but when I started at WebMD, I sat with another coworker and our decks were facing each other and our monitors were basically touching. If I stood up, I would see her and could speak to her, but we never did that. We would have conversations on instant messenger all day long. Like you see kids today standing next to each other and texting. I, and that's when I kind of realized that yes, we're using email in a transactional way to push work forward and get things done, tell someone else what we need from them, and then, or get an email back that tells us what to do next. But at WebMD, and I suspect at other companies, I found that the instant messaging had sort of replaced the go walk across to someone's desk and ask them the status of something. So I don't know if either of you have seen similar activity, but there's kind of there's the official email communication saying, I need one, two, three from you. Please get back to me by X time. But then if you want to follow up with someone, instead of picking up the phone or walking over to their desk, you do the quick ping on IM with, hey, did you get my email? Can I get it? Any idea when that might be able to happen? So I think that I adapted email because it was more efficient. But I, at least for myself, have definitely found that it has become something, it's become something more transactionally based and less, it's less communication in terms of what you would do face to face. 
I got to jump in on that because it's my head is now popping too. Tammy has 50 questions and I have 50 million thoughts going to, but something you just said really resonates with me. I think the idea of instant messaging and email when it started to come in, the thought being, wow, we could just work so much easier and more efficiently and not have to, it's not that we wouldn't have to interact, but we could just accomplish more in a smaller amount of time. And to your point, it's become so transactional, almost beyond transactional, that it just lacks the human interaction. And we, Tammy and I will be working with clients and say, how many of you have had an email or instant messaging exchange that's gone on for 30, 40 minutes? And if you'd only stood up and looked across the desk or walked across the room, could that have been resolved and handled in five or 10 minutes? And I think that's the big challenge. And what I loved about you know, what you were saying here is you do this by talking to people. But I think you have to recognize the efficiency of the tool, but kind of feel like we've lost a little humanity here of the actual interaction and building those relationships. It's not easy to solve a problem in instant messenger or mail, email if it's highly emotional or a complex situation. Is that the same thing that you see in your experience? Yes, absolutely. When you first started talking about this, the first thing that came to mind is that you probably work well with younger people because you are more on the bleeding edge from a technology standpoint because you're willing to try new things and adapt to new styles. But email, interestingly enough, and I don't know if you have kids, I have teenagers, and I know for them email is the last place they're going to go. They go if they have to go to email. Otherwise, email is not an option. So I wonder for you when you deal with younger colleagues, how your styles match up or what you've had to do to really engage with them on a different level because the communication that we once upon a time considered to be the most cutting edge is basically like getting out a quill and ink and, you know, or like the Pony Express, right? It's just, it's such an antiquated approach to communication. How does this change now? Because you, you embrace technology, how does this change for you when you're dealing with, and I don't want to just say millennials because millennials is a very broad group of people, but really younger people, like new to their careers, just entering the workforce. How do you adapt or what have you had to do or what have you learned from them? I think that I approach those face-to-face conversations the same way that I approached interviews back in high school. Everyone wants to be heard and everyone wants to feel like they're interesting. At first, I find that direct eye contact, I think, is, I find that it makes some young people uncomfortable. But if they come to realize that you're not looking through them, you are looking at them because you're interested and genuinely want to hear what they have to say. I think they then find that less threatening. But I try to find, I am genuinely curious and I try to find a way. I truly believe that we can find something in common with just about anyone if you try hard enough. Even those on the other side of a political divide like we have in this country right now, if you actually try, whether it's barbecue or your favorite song or how much you do or do not like Star Wars, I think that if you try hard enough, you can find some way of something in common with anyone. So what I generally try to do, especially when I'm working with a new team, I like to ask people about themselves, just like I know that you like what kind of music do you listen to? What podcast do you listen to? What books do you read? I like to find out about what are you interested in? What makes you tick? Where are you from? And I like to hear a little bit about someone else's story because, again, it makes them feel heard. It makes them feel like you believe that their experience is valuable enough for you to spend three minutes listening to them tell you about it. And that sort of connection seems to be something that has been lost. And 
I feel that trying to take the extra three minutes to have the conversation gives you an advantage. And you're able to walk through a room full say, hey, yesterday, or how's your grand, did your grandmother come through the operation okay? That sort of thing doesn't really happen so far. I think it goes away. Once people realize that you are genuinely interested, they are as people, and not just someone to do a task for you, I think you can go a lot further in having real communication when makes email or via instant messenger a lot more valuable because they know that you see them as more than a name on a page. Okay. I love that. You know, when we teach communication skills, one of the things that we teach is more of a mechanical element of giving a presentation is how you open up a presentation or how you engage your audience. And it's interesting because you're essentially applying the same tactics to everyday communication. So, you know, if, you, if, if I'm giving a presentation and it's really important for me to engage or connect with that audience from the outset, one of the things I'm going to do right up front is ask questions, right? Want to understand level set with my audience, understand what their shared experience might be, you know, by a show of hands, how many of you X or how many of you Y. And of course, that gives me information so that I can tailor what I'm doing or what I'm saying to that audience. And it sounds like you're doing that very genuinely because the curiosity is there, but also using it as a tactic to find those connection points with, as you put it, you know, an audience of people that may not be as comfortable when you make eye contact with them or may not, you know, a a 23-year-old may not be as savvy or as comfortable in a professional setting and may not understand, right, the dynamics. They simply don't have the experience to do it. And your ability to bridge the gap for them and maybe break the ice a little bit with them is incredibly valuable. So it's, it's interesting that you're taking a very, very technical approach to it, but humanizing it, really making it very personal. And I love that. I love how that, that works for you. I want to understand from a technical standpoint. So when you think about communication tools, and obviously we've evolved, as I said before, we've come a long way from email. When you are working with your clients now in your previous roles, you know, in the past five or so years, where have you seen the technology evolve to from a communication standpoint? What do you find are the tools that you're using most frequently in the workplace? How technology has changed? I'm finding, especially over the last five years, that a lot more companies are finally adopting video conferencing. I don't think that it the adoption was as heavy earlier on as everyone had predicted that it would be. But at this point, especially with so many services available for free, I am seeing a lot more video conferencing being done. But what I what I think is interesting there is even when you're on a video conference, if you're not the person talking, how many people on the video conference actually are showing themselves on the camera versus how many people are showing you their avatar, which I think speaks to the degree of multitasking that's going on even during the video conference. Unless you're the one talking, again, if you're the one who had to put together and speak to the PowerPoint slides, then you would really like to see everyone's faces instead of everyone's avatar. Right. And the value of that is just because you can read the body language. I think it's interesting when you talk about the slow adoption of video and now it's I think because not just the accessibility of free services like Zoom or other organizations or technologies, it's I think that there's a true value in being able to still have that interaction as much as possible. I think that we at least recognize it's really important to be able to read the other people on on the end of the conference call or in that interview. I go back to that first story you shared about the guy who reached out to you on Facebook and said, thank you so much. That did so much for me. And you, you've said a couple of times, everyone wants to be heard. I think there's a lot to be said for how you handle yourself in a you know, nonverbal communication way that allows people to have that experience. 
And I think that that's where there's been this, again, technology makes it efficient, but that video, it can go a long way into helping people feel more comfortable participating on a call, sharing a question, but they're reacting to what they're seeing. And if they couldn't see you, that comfort level drops a lot. So I think there's a lot of importance on that nonverbal aspect. I think that's what you're alluding to as well. I would certainly agree. And I also find it interesting. I've had the benefit over the past few years to do some global, you know, global work with companies that are doing work with companies overseas. And you're never going to actually meet these people in person. So being able to, to actually see them on a video conference, see them, hear their voice, the background. I find that that goes a long way in team cohesion, even if the other people on the, on the phone are in other time zones and it's nighttime for them and they've been working all day. I do find that being able to see them on video and see their, see their gestures, see their mannerisms, and just to see what they look like and see what they look like while they're speaking, again, goes a long way towards team understanding, team cohesion, and it does have the benefit of what used to cost thousands of dollars sending people to travel just to have the benefit of having met someone and therefore having your work with them be easier going forward. I'm actually a fan of video conferencing, and I do like to sometimes leave the camera on just to show that I'm listening and to show that I'm focused, even when others may not be, as really just a way to show courtesy to the person who's speaking or the person may, who may have called the meeting or the person who has been tasked with disseminating information to the group. I, I, think, it, I think it just shows, again, courtesy that is, it's an easy way to show that sort of camaraderie in environments that I think invite that less and less. I agree. You know, Valerie, you mentioned you mentioned a few a few words in there like courtesy, courtesy, interest, that collaboration, commonality. And as you know, our software presenter, that's really what we set out to do as well. We recognize there is a huge challenge out there in the workforce, regardless of your role or your position, whether it's in person or it's on a virtual call like uh, you know, every day we have millions of virtual calls happening. When you have that video interface, you still have to show up a certain way and it changes how other people interact with you and it changes how they'll engage you, whether or not they even will engage you, uh, making it easier to, to have conversations. So our goal with our software presenter was to give people a technology platform to practice those skills so that they could ideally get the kind of feedback they would from a coach to be able to have that best impression or create that courteousness or that interest. And a lot of that is just, as you mentioned, managed all off what you see and how the person sounds. How have you practiced those skills yourself to make sure you're, you know, giving the right impression or the idea that you're interested or engaged with your audience? How do you currently practice that or do you to focus on that part of the equation? I think the easiest way to do that is to not look at yourself. But boy, is it hard to not do that, especially when you're first video conferencing. Because you find yourself thinking, good Lord, my hair looks terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely self-obsessed with how I look on the camera and it's so funny that you bring that up because one of the things that I've, I'm not doing it right now because I'm basically where the images are on my screen right now, I'm actually, I see myself, but I've taken to, to removing myself from the view so that I don't have to be distracted with, oh, my hair is out of place or gosh, it looks like I have a double chin today or you know whatever it might be, or I didn't put any makeup on today and now people can see that. So the ability to remove myself from the equation, I love that you said that because it is, it is a big issue. I, you know, one of the things that, or that you mentioned and, and Tim just touched on it 
is this idea of using the skills of whether you're being a participant and wanting to make sure that you're giving the audience or the, the speaker rather the understanding that you're paying attention, that you're giving them visual cues, nod your head, whatever it might be. I wonder if you in any of your training, because I know you do a lot of training with employees, if you incorporate this into the training work that you're doing. Most of the training work that I do is either helping new employees learn how to do their job or working with customers. One of the things that I like to do is have more junior members of the team join me on video conference calls with a client. I want them to get used to that environment. I want them to be more comfortable and I want them to be more comfortable owning their own work and owning their own voice. Because often what we are speaking to a client about is the work that was done, not really by me, but by someone else on the team. I want them to get, A, the credit that they deserve. I want the client to know that they're the one who did the work. And I want the client to hear them speaking about what they did because it helps give the client confidence in the work that we're doing, but it also helps more junior members of the team get comfortable speaking to clients. Clients are just people, and it, it allows them to speak to and own the work that they did, and I want to make sure that they're being recognized for it. I didn't really do it. Most of the jobs that I've had don't necessarily involve me doing a lot of anything. Most of the jobs that I've had involve others doing work that I'm then pulling together and launching and then representing to customers. But it took a whole army of people to actually get the work done. I like to make sure that those who did the work get the recognition and the thanks for the good work that they did. Since, yes, they were in the background, but they put in a lot of hours on it too. And you were asking about working especially with younger employees. They may be used to just texting with their friends. And perhaps as the workplace evolves, that will happen as well. But for now, that's not the way it works. And I like to try to help coach and mentor people in learning and owning their own communication style and becoming more comfortable in those situations. I Yes, it's scary at first, but once you see someone on a video screen and hear their voice, they become another person. Uh, the all caps word, the client, then becomes represented by a face and a voice on the screen and a name that then you have in your mind when you go forward doing your work afterwards and you know, continuing your work for that particular client. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I really do like that approach. And I wonder, it's kind of interesting to me because you're not overtly teaching people communication skills. It's, it's certainly not what your focus is, but it's all in there. You know, it's, it feels like it's so organic to everything that you're doing because you've been so focused on how we communicate more obviously from a technical or from a from the perspective of how you're getting your job done so to your point in a client facing role it's important that you understand what needs to be communicated to the client both verbally and non-verbally how you're showing up making sure that people are getting the credit for the things that they're doing i'm still curious to know from you how do you, are you consciously thinking about it from that perspective or is it just something that to you is so germane to how work gets done? Are you really forcibly trying to introduce communication skills in or do you feel like the body language, the eye contact, all the things that you've been talking about is very much an organic process? 
I would say that for me personally, it's part of an organic process because I learned perhaps the most important lesson in my corporate life. In my very first job out of college, I was in a bank management training program. I was put in a new branch. And of course, the problem customer came in and everyone rolled their eyes and said, oh, let's give him the new girl. So I worked with this gentleman who had an issue and had a reputation for being difficult and raising his voice. I basically let him sit at my desk and complain for about 45 minutes. And it became obvious that what he was complaining about was a change in the bank fees policy, which I'm sure had probably been explained to him or sent in a mail by post that he didn't read. But I gave him the benefit of the doubt that it hadn't been explained to him. And after listening to him complain for 45 minutes, I was able to say, hey, you know, I think the real issue here is that they probably never told you, but they changed the fee schedule here. So if we make this change over here, then we'll be able to offset this charge and you will no longer be getting these extra charges every month. The man was so thankful that his whole demeanor transformed. And he said, well, if this was never explained to me. Why didn't they tell me this? I, thank you so much. So then afterwards, when he would come in, he would say, no, I'm going to wait for Valerie. She knows me. She knows my account. She knows my business. Well, I really didn't, but that made a big impression on me that all I, I didn't really do anything. All I needed to do was really listen. And then I was able to help him identify the source of the problem and help him fix it. And I think that the more I look back, the more I realize that that was probably one of the most seminal lessons that shaped how I have worked from then on. I have gotten something of a reputation for being able to work successfully with difficult colleagues and difficult clients. And I find that they're very often like the gentleman at the bank. They feel like no one is listening to them and their problem. If you listen, you may find out what the problem is. The problem they think it is may not even be the problem at all. Or the problem may have nothing at all to do with you or your company or the work you're doing together. The problem may actually be something that's going on in their life. But once you take the time to listen, they feel, again, there's that word, they feel heard and they feel understood. And because of that, they're going to come back and want to speak to you. They're going to come back and want to work with you. And that's something that I have tried to pass on to that I've with, you know, the value of listening and especially with difficult people to find out what's the origin of their issue. It may not be what you think it is. It may not be what they think it is. But I think that's probably one of the most seminal lessons that uh, I learned early on. And I genuinely do try to carry that forward uh, to this day. And I do find that it still serves me well, especially now that communication has become so much more fragmented. We were speaking about email and instant messaging and video conferencing earlier and how it has how email especially has become transaction-based. When I was thinking about the evolution of communication in the corporate environment uh, in preparation for, for speaking with you today, what I found myself thinking about was that, you know, over time, I think that email especially, since we do use it transactionally-based, since we do use it as a sort of to-do list, I think in a way, it's contributed to this increasing sense of always being busy and always being anxious. Because essentially, we're working in a one-way direction. We're 
we're following up on all the things that we are able to follow up on and take action on. And then we have to sit and wait for someone else. But being able to take action on all of those things that we have to do makes us feel like we did our part. And I think that contributes to us always feeling busy. And then the the waiting for others to get back to us, I think, is also what leads to us feeling anxious. Because once I hear back from somebody, I need to take the next step. Because that's what I'm supposed to do to continue with my busyness. And I think that contributes to why we're always checking our emails. We're always checking our phones. Because we have this sense, this constant sense of being on the hamster wheel of busyness. And once we get that next ping from someone, that allows us to take the next step in our own work and our own busyness. And that's one less piece of anxiety that we have to wait for on that particular task, although we still have probably a whole long list. Wow. That's a big philosophical statement um, that we could have a whole conversation. (laughs) And I'm like pausing here thinking about it because I'm listening to what you're saying. Just like, oh yeah, there's you've there's, been heard. Oh, you have been heard for sure, Valerie. That I mean, it's a really interesting. It's an interesting notion. I mean, this whole idea of busyness, right? There's been so much written about this idea that we're all so desperate to be busy because it represents something that it kind of makes more important if we're busy versus having free time. So it's a, it's a very interesting concept and I'm intrigued. And while we can't spend that much time talking about it, I am intrigued and, and want to noodle on that for a while, this idea of how the email creates that sort of constant state of busyness. It creates that constant state of waiting and the urgency drives from that. So that's really interesting. I do have just two more questions for you and then We'd love to uh, have some fun before we wrap this up. Question: My first question, they're, they're kind of related, but my first question is back to listening. And then I want to just talk about what you see in terms of the way people are being trained in the corporate world and, and maybe what's missing. But my first one is, is relating to what you've been talking about with listening. I mean, what do you think listening looks like? So how do you know that someone's actually listening? That's a really good question because my husband can be looking right at me and not hear a word I say. Check. I got that one too. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know know that someone's listening to you? That happens a lot. I think that happens a lot also at work. We're speaking to someone and they're looking at us, but they're really not hearing what, they're really not hearing what we say. I think the only, in a way, the only way that we can tell often if someone heard us is by what they do next. Were several elements of content present in the conversation that action had to take place upon? And if so, were those actions taken? It's also easy to just move on to the next thing and not actually stop and ask if what you said was heard and understood. I think that's that we very often skip because again in the busyness cycle I need to tell you these 10 things because I need you to do these 10 things next and then I'm on to the next thing so I'm just going to spit all 10 things out to you it's your responsibility to hear them and we'll find out later whether or not you heard all 10 things that I said I would say that that's probably something that most of us don't always do well enough. I'm also a big fan of follow-up emails or follow-up messages just to recap what was said. Because for myself, I may forget what were those 10 things that I told you that I needed you to do. It's a good way for me to actually go back and make sure that the 10 things got done and that I said them. But that is something that I fear we could potentially lose more and more. So if I know my partner in crime over there at Tim Wickstrom, I know that right now he's chomping at the bit to say a couple of things and we can't spend this uh, any more time talking about how, what listening looks like or how we listen. So I will just say this. I think that 
it's interesting the way that you 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 talk about how we can assess whether or not someone is listening to us from the output from what they do and i would say uh, and this is our this is our lesson of the day that expecting someone to have grasped 10 things from any situation is probably a lot, right? It's probably more than most people can handle. And, and that may just be a random number and not, not reality of what we're doing. It's a very, I, th- I think you've articulated that this is so much of what we're striving for in the way that we communicate is to ensure that we're being heard. And we want others to know that we've heard them. But at the end of the day, all of our communication should result in something. And ideally, it's that if I'm speaking informally to a friend or my partner or my children, I want to make sure that they've grasped what I've shared with them. Whether it be, you know, I need you to go brush your teeth to I'm having a challenge with this, whatever it might be. And in the work environment, uh, these are the things that we need to accomplish. I want to be sure that everybody understands where I'm coming from, what the objectives are, what I'm saying, what you're saying, all of that. And the way that we process that information obviously is different for everybody. And the way that we share that information influences how it's going to be heard. And I, I think you've shared uh, both during this conversation and ahead of this conversation, the fact that you recognize that there are different ways to communicate to ensure that you get the outcome that you want. And if you're sitting and interviewing somebody, as you shared, for your school or for, for your paper when you're a teenager and just curiously asking questions and pulling the story out of somebody, you're acknowledging that you hear them in one way. And if you're working with a team of people and trying to help them understand how to do their jobs more effectively, the way that they do things is going to ensure that you've been heard. And there are just so many different avenues that we can go down. But I'm going to ask you my last question, and then we're we're going to wrap up. My last question is in line with everything that we've been talking about. From your vantage point, as someone who has trained people, who has worked in organizations and seen the shift in how work is getting done, do you think purely from the perspective of communication skills and communication skills being very broad, being about everything from how we use our technology to communicate, how we deliver information to people, how we listen to people, do you think that people are being trained effectively on this? Do you feel like there's a gap for people in terms of how they communicate with each other? If you think about it, communication is really sort of a wheel that carries a cart forward, whether that cart is work or a relationship. But I think that the importance communication as a vital and fundamental sort of one of the table legs that so many things stand on is something that we don't think about. We're all communicating all day long, but we don't stop and think about the how or the why. My concern is that we will continue to let technology do more and more of it for us with things like bots and AI and Alexa and Siri, uh, you know, having those electronic tools allow us to do minimal communication and get maximum output. I think that we run the risk of losing something vital if that does, if we do allow that to occur. And in terms, but in terms of, you know, do I think there's enough training about the basic elements of good communication happening? No, I don't. I think that there could and should be more specific training about the basics of communication, whether we're talking about verbal or written. There are ways to write an effective email that will get an effective response. There are ways to have an effective conversation 
that will have a positive outcome. Do I think that we spend enough time focusing on that, given how how vital it is to the success of whatever endeavor we're trying to carry out? No, I don't. Which is why the fact that I think that I try to actually pay attention to it and make more of an effort to do it well, to some extent, has set me apart. And it is something that people remember about me. It is something that people would tell you about me. And, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that how you make others feel says a lot about you. And I think that that's true in our, in our personal spheres and our professional spheres. And in order to have effective business relationships, how are you making your customer feel? How are you making your coworker feel? How are you making your boss or your teammate or your, the rest of your team, how are you making them feel about themselves and the work that they're doing? Are you setting for effective communication? I agree with that. And I think I'm going to, I'm going to jump back to the very beginning of this because it just keeps rattling around in my head, to be honest with you about the guy who reached out to you on Facebook again, and what we continue to talk about at different levels here. I think that when we talk about how we know people are listening the example you gave about you know being able to recite back what was heard, the action items, the key messages and points are 100% spot on. And I think something happens before that. And we're slightly touching on it, but I'm just going to hit it where I think it, where I think it lands. We, you know, and I think you probably do this very naturally yourself, which is why you left that person with that impression, which is It's how you show up as an individual, whether it's somebody you're interviewing, to your point, whether it's your team or a client or your colleagues, there's something about the way you show up with your body language, the way that you sound, the the pace at which you're asking those questions in that interview. It's not just about the quality. it, It creates their willingness to participate and interact with you. And I think that's the piece that people struggle First of all, understanding is a critical part of the equation. It's always very technical and transaction around, are we capturing the to-do items and the next steps and who's responsible for what? But it's the elements that we sort of have, the tools we have as human beings, such as eye contact and our gestures and our open body language or closed body language that allows that to happen. And that's where we really focus and What we like to draw out on these conversations is there's a whole lot of human elements that we don't talk about these days. And we don't, I think a lot of people don't even understand them because of technology or what have you. And to your point with AI, AI is never going to replace the human being. I just don't think that's possible. And nor should it be, by the way. (laughs) We shouldn't all be replaced by AI. But those tools can certainly help us become the best version of ourselves that we want to be and that what people tell us resonates with them. So that's what we focus on with Presenter is helping people really understand what is the best version of them. And so I think to Tammy's point, I don't think the training hits that. I don't think there's accessibility to it. I don't think people have the opportunity to be educated about it. And so we attempt to solve that part of the equation so that people can be more holistic versus just really truly believing if I have a good method for recanting the meeting minutes and the action items and to-do lists, that somebody's going to feel heard long before that happens. And it's also going to dictate how much they contribute. Am I making you comfortable? And that's got nothing to do with the content. So I think that that's an interesting aspect to focus on too. I think it starts with a basic level of respect for the other person, who you are and why you are here. And not just what I'm trying to do, but what part do you play in that? And how can I help you do your part better? That idea of respect is, it's interesting because it's all interpreted very differently off of somebody. Tammy said, it's like, check the box. I've got it. If, if my partner is not looking at me when I'm talking to him, I don't perceive him to be listening to me at all. I need that 
visual acknowledgement. And that to me can lead me to feel more respected in the conversation that he's actively involved, he's a part of it. And without that, that's my cue. But that's not true for everybody. Some folks I know, they don't need the other person to look at them at all. But to your point, if they can paraphrase back what was shared with me, then I feel respected. I feel they listen to me. And I just think it's an interesting challenge because we never know what the other person's preference is or what their need is. So our goal is to make sure we know how to satisfy all those, all those bases. I try to show up with an attitude of being genuine. And I think that in itself comes across. If I approach an interaction, really any interaction, with the mindset that I'm here to participate in this and I respect you as an, an individual and your part in, in this as well, I don't see how we could not start off two steps forward than either of us just approaching an interaction with a perhaps less than mindful approach. Uh, it's real easy during the workday to become something of a robot and try to check everything off your list and to forget that the people around you are also individuals with their, their, their own thoughts, their own needs, and their own, their own part to play. And having just a basic level of respect for the fact that everyone else is here and everyone else is trying to contribute, I think is at least a way to start having effective communication. But I certainly have never heard a trainer anywhere say, you need to start any interaction showing a degree of respect for everyone else who's here. Agreed. It's definitely an interesting challenge. And I think it's an ongoing one and one we could continue talking about for a very long time to come. And we barely even got into the generational differences and things. But I know we have to be respectful of your time and we have to be able to wrap this up as well. Uh, We do like to ask a couple of questions at the end of this, just for all of our listeners to get an understanding of where uh, your head's at, what you're interested in and what you're focused on. And to to go back to the days of when we have books on nightstands, we'd <laughs> love to know what it is these days. What podcasts are you listening to? What books are you reading? What's driving your interest? Where are you consuming your information from? And what are you consuming these days? I am still a fan of the actual book that you can hold in your hand. And that is evidenced by the many, many unread books that I have in my home. Sitting on hands are a couple of British mysteries that uh, that's, that's a genre that I'm a big fan of. I'm also reading a book, uh, an iBook called Emotional Agility. And then in terms of podcasts, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss and Sam Hips, but one of the best podcast that I've listened to this year was a BBC production, also a mystery called Death in Ice Valley. Boy, was that good. Are you a serial follower? Do you listen to serial? You know, I actually haven't, but everyone says that I should, given my interest in that genre. Yeah, I would think that would be natural. I'm on the, they they just launched the third season, which is fascinating about the judicial system. And it uh, really takes a close look at the, the legal system and the, the crime and the court system in a town in Ohio. It's really interesting. So I highly recommend it. I mean, the first one was phenomenal for sure. And second season was great as well. This one uh, might even be my favorite so far. So I highly recommend Serial. That's good stuff. I'm a fan of the podcast in general just because it's next generation interviewing, but it's also next generation storytelling. 100%. It's the 21st century version of what I was doing in high school, interviewing the 100-year-old man. Totally. Really interesting stories. And with that in mind, we are grateful that you've given us time today to let us hear your story and to let us allow our curiosity to work and to ask you questions. So we're really grateful for 
your time today, Valerie. And we hope that thank this you so much. Interesting to you as it was to us, and we're sure that our listeners will be interested in hearing your story because you have a really you have a very interesting and cool take on communication as it's embedded into what we do every day, and and certainly this whole idea of listening which is making me think we're going to have to do an episode just on listening, for sure. Yes. Well, I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today, and I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the interviews that you guys have going forward. You're doing some great work. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks appreciate so much that. for your time today, Valerie. Thank you so much.